It's Friday, February 7th, 2020. 270 days until the presidential election. And this was Impeachment Today. Good morning, I'm Hayes Brown, reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News. Welcome to our post-impeachment world. It looks depressingly like the impeachment world we've been living in, but now with 29% less faith in our institution's ability to constrain the powerful. Okay, today we're talking to Harvard Law professor and impeachment hearing witness Noah Feldman about what Trump's acquittal and everything that comes with it means for the Constitution. But before we get to all that, let's catch up on what happened yesterday. On Thursday morning, fresh off the Senate's acquittal of the president, White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grissom made a rare press appearance to deliver this message. He's going to be honest. He's going to speak to the country with honesty and I think with a little bit of humility that he, uh, you know, he and the family went through a lot. He and this country went through a lot. Uh, He's glad it's over. He'll certainly talk about that. But I I think he's going to also talk about, uh, you know, just how horribly he was treated and, you know, that maybe people should pay for that. That began at, ironically enough, the National Prayer Breakfast. The Prayer Breakfast, which, sidebar, is organized by a group that's the subject of a Netflix documentary called The Family, is an annual event that's always attended by the president. And to his credit, Trump did spend some time at the Prayer Breakfast talking about religion. Well, sort of, if you count ripping into the religiosity of people who've wronged him. Weeks ago and again yesterday, courageous Republican politicians and leaders had the wisdom, fortitude, and strength to do what everyone knows was right. I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you, when they know that that's not so. That last bit was a clear jab at two people. Mitt Romney for his vote to convict him on Wednesday, and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who previously told a reporter that she prays for the president. Pelosi was sitting on stage with Trump during that, by the way. Now, before we go on, a quick flashback. This is part of President Bill Clinton's statement the day after his trial ended in acquittal. Now that the Senate has fulfilled its constitutional responsibility, bringing this process to a conclusion, I want to say again to the American people how profoundly sorry I am for what I said and did to trigger these events and the great burden they have imposed on the Congress and on the American people. I also am humbled and very grateful. I played you that clip so you can understand just how not that Trump's whatever it was yesterday was. Seriously, even the president didn't know what to call that. And this is really not a news conference. It's not a speech. It's not anything. It's just we're sort of, uh, it's a celebration. What you could call it is a campaign rally, one that began with President Trump entering the East Room of the White House to the sounds of Hail to the Chief and rapturous applause. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States.
that really set the tone for the next hour or so. It was literally stream of consciousness with no prepared marks for the president. He yelled about the Mueller investigation and the stock market. He showed off the acquittal headline on a copy of the Washington Post. He scorned his enemies. Uh, we've been going through this now for over three years. Uh, it was evil. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. Uh, it was leakers and liars. And this should never, ever happen to another president, ever. I want to apologize to my family for having them have to go through a phony, rotten deal by some very evil and sick people. And then you have some that used religion as a crutch. They never used it before. An article written today, never heard him use it before. But today, you know, it's one of those things. But, you know, it's a failed presidential candidate, so things can happen when you fail so badly running for president. And heaped praise onto his friends. When you read those transcripts, Tim Scott, I don't know if Tim's here, but he said, Sir, he's the first one to call me. Sir, I read the transcript. You did nothing wrong. And Mitch, he stayed there right from the beginning. He never changed. And Mitch McConnell, I want to tell you, you did a fantastic job. And I see it, you know, every time I see it. When I first got to know him, Jim Jordan, when I first got to know Jim, I said, uh, huh, he never wears a jacket. <laughs> what the hell's going on? He's obviously very proud of his body. <laughs> I have to start with Kevin. Man, did you do a job. Lucky you're there. Lucky you're there. Because it wouldn't have worked out if you don't have the right people, I'll tell you, Kevin McCarthy has done an incredible job. Truly, this is clearly someone who, as several senators who voted to acquit him said, has learned... We went through hell unfairly, did nothing wrong, did nothing wrong. He's learned his lesson. So, to sum up... They took nothing and brought me to a final vote of impeachment. That's a very ugly word to me. It's a very dark word, very ugly. They took nothing. They took a phone call that was a totally appropriate call. I call it a perfect call, because it was. And they brought me to the final stages of impeachment. But now we have that gorgeous word. I never thought a word would sound so good. It's called total acquittal. Meanwhile, the thing Trump was accused of doing, trying to get Ukraine to meddle in the 2020 election by abusing his office and pressuring its government into announcing investigations into Hunter Biden and his work in Ukraine, well, who needs Ukraine's government when you've got the U.S. Senate? BuzzFeed News' Emma Loop reported on Thursday afternoon that three Republican senators have been gathering information on Hunter's finances from the administration for months now. And unlike the documents the House requested in the impeachment inquiry, the Treasury Department has been more than happy to turn those documents about Biden right on over. And now we have today's reading from our Nixometer. Well, I'm not a crook. On our scale, a zero is a normal day in a normal White House, and 10 is President Richard Nixon resigning and flying away Marine One. And this morning we're at, you know what? I think this thing has served its purpose. The nexometer was always meant to be a shorthand, a stand-in for something that can't really be measured. In this case, the instability and confusion that the impeachment process brought on. But things seem pretty certain for the time being, at least. For now, Donald Trump is safely ensconced in the White House, with the Senate at his back. And so, with a heavy heart, we retire 
the Nixometer. After the break, we talk to Noah Feldman about how the Constitution is holding up after these last few months. Stick around. Chief-It, we're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat-burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 9021 OMG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind the scenes stories that actually happen. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90210 super fan and radio host Sissany sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect and relive each moment from Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting Donna Martin graduates. You have an amazing memory. You remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show. And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. <laughs> Listen to 9021 OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to gear up for the NFL postseason. Yes! Head over to NFLShop.com today for the largest assortment of officially licensed gear. I need it! NFL Shop is your destination for jerseys, t-shirts, headwear, and more. Oh, you're sweet with it! Come back after the game for the best selection of NFL gear anywhere. How you like that, baby? Rep your team pride with styles fit for the whole family. To shop now, go to NFLShop.com. All right, it is time for the final edition of This Fucking Thing. It's where we zoom in on a person, place, or thing that's shaping the impeachment saga. Today, it's the Constitution, which feels really fitting at this moment. Joining us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have Harvard Law Professor, Constitutional Scholar, and host of the podcast Deep Background, Noah Feldman. Thank you so much for joining us, Noah. My great pleasure. So if your name sounds familiar with some of our listeners, A, they're nerds, but B, it's probably because you were one of four scholars that testified in the House about the constitutionality of the case against the president. So what was it like for you watching the trial play out? Well, I would say nerds are my people, so that's all to the good. (laughs) It's been completely fascinating and also a little depressing. The fascinating part has been I had the chance, as you mentioned, to be a participant in the process by testifying in front of the House Judiciary Committee. And that was nerve-wracking, but it was also a little bit uplifting insofar as I saw that the system that the Constitution created was to some degree capable of working. And here's what I mean. Under the Constitution, as the framers intended it and as it's historically operated, if a president abuses his office or her office Mm -hmm. and tries to break the system by cheating in an election— the available remedy isn't really a criminal prosecution. The available remedy is supposed to be impeachment. And that's in the first instance up to the House. That's in the Constitution. And the House did what it was supposed to do. It 
gathered information, it talked to witnesses, it held hearings, and it impeached the president. So to the extent one wants to think of this glass half full, the constitutional part there really worked. Then, obviously, things moved to the Senate, and it was a lot more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So on Wednesday afternoon, the Senate voted to acquit President Trump on two charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. That was kind of always assumed that we wouldn't get to the two-thirds threshold. But what really stood out to me, especially towards the end, was the argument that, yes, he did it, but it doesn't really matter because it's not impeachable behavior. How did that argument track with you? To me, that's the single worst outcome that we could have had here. I would have preferred some hypocrisy from the senators. Mm. I know that sounds weird, but, you know, that great old maxim that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, mm. by which I think that maxim means that if you're a hypocrite, it shows you know there's a difference between right and wrong. You may have been wrong, but the fact that you're pretending that you didn't do it is a way of saying that you acknowledge the difference. And so the worst thing to my mind would be if history took seriously the view of those senators who said, well, this is just not impeachable. You know, the president can abuse his power. Abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. The president can cheat in an election. That's completely fine unless he committed a very identifiable statutory crime. I mean, those views are gross distortions of how everyone has thought about the impeachment remedy for the last 225 years of U.S. constitutional history. And if you go back beyond that, another 350 years of British history of impeachments. And so that kind of a change is bad news for the system. And you just have to hope that that's not how the outcome of this trial comes to be interpreted. So one of the fascinating things to me in this whole process is watching the power structures of the government almost seem to shift in real time. Because the Senate really did seem to be saying here, look, our power as an institution is whatever. Just keep our party in the White House. What do you think that sort of thinking means for the separation of powers? It's terrible for the separation of powers because it essentially means that if the party of the president controls the Senate, that not only will they vote not to remove a president, which is bad enough, but they won't even allow a normal trial to take place in the Senate, which is what the Constitution requires. So this is the very first impeachment where no witnesses were called in the Senate. There's never been one before of judges or presidents where that happened. That sets a dangerous and radical new precedent that basically says, we're not really going to have much of a trial. I mean, Technically speaking, you could say, oh, well, there was sort of a trial because both sides got to present their arguments. But nobody was allowed to present actual evidence or actual witnesses. And that really weakens the idea that the Senate can function as a check on the president. You know, that's the whole point of impeachment. It was written that way so that Congress could act as a check. The House did its part. It did act as a check. And the Senate is supposed to do its part, at least considering the charges in a serious way. And I think a case can be made that they really didn't do that. And, but all that is so wild, considering in the closing arguments, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, argued that the real abuse of power took place in the House of Representatives. And that actually seemed to gain some traction. Do you think that future houses will be even more hesitant to bring forward charges at all then? Or do you think the opposite is true and it'll be easier and faster and more and more often we will see the House just trying to bring charges, knowing that it will probably go nowhere in the Senate? First of all, I just want to say for the record how outrageous it is that the White House counsel purporting to act on behalf of the president would say that it's an abuse of power for the House of Representatives to inquire and then impeach a president for abuse of power. I mean, 
that's the most childish version of I'm, I'm rubber and you're, you're glue. The <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's just completely absurd. The Constitution gives the House of Representatives the sole power of impeachment. That is its job. And for them to exercise that responsibility is the opposite of an abuse of power. It is the correct use of power. So that argument, I think, you know, we just need to say it, even though, you know, maybe a lot of listeners already believe this, that is ridiculous and it's bad. Now, with respect to the long-term meaning, I actually think we have to ask a question that we don't yet know the answer to, which is what will happen in the 2020 presidential election. Mm. If Donald Trump is not reelected, then future observers of this are going to say, rightly or wrongly, they could be right about this, they could be wrong, but they'll say it anyway, that the act of impeachment by the House weakened Donald Trump and that therefore the impeachment process maybe didn't work perfectly, but did work to some meaningful degree because the House took action, they focused the public on the president's wrongdoing, and then he was not reelected. Again, that might be mythic. There might be other reasons that he's voted out of office, mm-hmm. but people will say retrospectively that that mattered. On the other hand, if Donald Trump is reelected in 2020, you can be very sure that people will look at it the other way and they'll say that Trump was impeached and it had no significant impact on his presidency at all. He will certainly see it that way. Oh, absolutely. And the takeaway for him will be, I can do whatever I want. But I think future presidents are going to be pretty disinclined to worry about being impeached. And Congress may be much more cautious about impeachment if they see that it didn't even have a meaningful real-world effect other than their symbolic declaration. And that would also be a real erosion of the system that the framers set up. Impeachment isn't perfect, but it's the only system we've got for checking a president other than an election. Which is wild because one of the arguments that was being made was why even bother to remove, we have an election coming up. So in under your first hypothetical, that would be almost a vindication of that argument saying, well, no need to remove. See, the election happened and he was removed. It worked. So after all of this is done, we are currently 043 on presidents being removed from office via impeachment. Is the impeachment clause broken? Has it always been broken? Or is it kind of working the way it was intended? I have to say, I think it's a mix. Mm. It's sort of working the way it's intended because the framers understood that by requiring two-thirds for removal, they were making it incredibly hard to remove the president. They, They did get that part. Technically, I would say we're one for four rather than zero for three, or technically we are zero for three, but in real life we're one for four because in Richard Nixon's case, the House Judiciary Committee's recommendation of articles of impeachment was enough to get him to quit. Hmm. So I see the Nixon case as the one case where the process, in fact, did work. So, you know, batting 250 isn't great, but it's better (laughs) than batting zero. Um, You know, they knew it, the framers knew they were making it really hard to remove the president, and I think they did that intentionally. They, they could have just said it's a majority vote to get the president out, and they didn't want to do that. So it is hard. But political polarization and the power of political parties, which is really greater over senators than it's ever been in probably at any point in U.S. history, does really weaken the effect. The idea, which we saw in the Nixon situation, that some senators said publicly that they were going to defect from their party, that they thought that what Trump, sorry, that they thought that what Nixon's actions Freudian were- Freudian slip right there. Deserved to be removed. Yeah, exactly. Deserved to be removed. That's very hard to picture happening today. And mm-hmm. almost no matter what conduct Trump was, was accused of. So 
going to wrap up this interview with a really simple question for you. How do we fix this? How do we fix impeachment? The only way I think to really fix impeachment is to start with the House realizing that if it wants to engage in impeachment, it has to start sooner. It has to be more thorough. It has to accept that there may be no opportunity for more witnesses to appear before the Senate. And so it has to make an even fuller and more complete record than it did in this instance. And it has to make it really publicly clear that the president's conduct is wrongful and costly so that the act of impeachment itself will do the heavy lifting rather than relying on the removal component. You know, to a certain extent, that is what happened in the Clinton impeachment. The whole process of impeaching him before the House was humiliating to Clinton. It drew huge public attention to his conduct, which otherwise might have been to some extent swept under the rug. And it hurt him. And, you know, then it hurt the Democratic Party because then Al Gore didn't want to get help from Bill Clinton on the campaign trail for moral reasons. And the upshot of that was it contributed to Gore's defeat, a lot of people think. So in that instance, the House did do what it was supposed to do by its lights. Fair enough. Noah, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me to discuss how the heck the Constitution will be affected by all of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And it's a good way to to end a long and painful conversation. Amen. (laughs) Okay, we have time for one more set of questions from you, the listeners. This first one was sent via email from Anja in Australia. Hi there, I've been following your podcast from early on, not only to be informed about this super weird post-factual U.S. political situation, but also as a deflection while sitting out inside the bushfires and their consequences in Australia. And since the start of the podcast, I have a question I wanted to ask and haven't found an answer to yet. Where the bloody hell is Trump? Why is he not at the trial? Can you just skip the thing and say, yeah, nah, and be a no-show? I don't understand this at all, especially because of the speculation all the time about why he did what he did. Why not just ask the guy? Anyway, thanks for enlightening me on the issue of impeachment and greetings from Sydney, Anja. Well, thank you. Now, Anja, as you noted, the president didn't turn up at his trial at all, which is actually the norm for impeachment proceedings. Partially, that's to help keep the dignity of the office and separate the person from the proceedings. It goes back to the first of these affairs when President Andrew Johnson's lawyers advised him very strongly not to show up. Because like Trump, Johnson was a prone to say whatever came to his mind, including threats against his political enemies and inconvenient glimpses into his true motives. And for the record, the last time Trump was pushed to provide answers under oath during the Mueller investigation, he managed to get by with just submitting written answers, and even those may have contained falsehoods. Okay, next, we have Virginia from Seattle, who sent in a question via voice memo. Hi there, it's Virginia from Seattle. I really love the podcast. It's the exact amount of snark that I need to deal with this. My question is, what is the Republicans' endgame? I mean, what do they think is going to happen when they acquit him and till the election? Like, what do they think is going to happen? He's suddenly going to turn into this great guy and behave like a great president? Of course he's not. He's probably going to abolish the presidency and bring us to the brink of nuclear war. What the hell are they thinking? Thanks. Bye. That's a great question. And unfortunately, I think one that doesn't really have a satisfying answer because it varies on who you ask or who you're asking about. For some Republicans who support him the most, the end game is to ride his coattails and keep winning re-election based on his message and the way that he invigorates the Republican base. 
For some, it's just not being the target of a Trump tweet or a primary from your right. And for some, it doesn't really matter. So long as they get to keep Trump's base voting for their party and Trump keeps naming judges onto the federal bench and cutting taxes, meh, he's going to keep doing all this. And that's fine. Which leads me to a final question, uh, one that was asked to me by one of my coworkers the other day. She asked, so what was even the point? Why go through this process if there was never even the chance of President Trump being removed? And I think the answer is because of what it would mean to not go through this process. The House of Representatives had evidence that the president was using his office to win an election. If you're the Democrats, you've just won the House back, and going after the president on this issue could mean losing it again. Meanwhile, the Senate in its current form was always going to acquit the president. 20 Republicans weren't going to vote for his removal, even as several of them said, yes, what he did was wrong. But the alternative to launching this impeachment process is to say that it doesn't matter, you know, that the rules don't matter, that laws don't matter, that the Constitution doesn't really matter. And that, I think, would have been an even worse situation than the one we're in right now. Because as maddening and confusing and fucking dumb as this process has been at times, you deserve to know what your government is doing. We deserve to know what our president is doing. And he may disagree, but that's not his call to make. So what was the point of this all? The point was to say that it matters. Okay, that's it forever. That's it. Shut her down. Turn out the lights, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air style on your way out. I've heard from a lot of y'all that you'd want some kind of news podcast from us going forward, which has been great to hear, and not bad on the old egos around these parts. We're going to be working in the next few weeks to figure out what that might look like, so hang tight, friends, and uh, watch this feed for updates. I promise you'll be the first to know. And now, to paraphrase a certain set of cruise ship musicians, here's a group of people it's been an honor playing with these last few months. Our show was produced by Dan Bauza, Alan Haberchek, and Jacopo Penzo, with editorial assistance from Tom Guerra. Veronica Doolin provided audio assistance from Washington, D.C. Thanks to Crystal Waters and Maggie Taylor for helping coordinate, and to Joseph Fridman for engineering our interview with Noah Feldman. Editing was done by Josh Fisher, Taylor Hosking, Rosemary Minkler, Kevin Dye, and Ryan Kylog. Julian Weller is our supervising producer. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatikader, Nikki Etor, Samantha Hennig, Maggie Schultz, and Ben Smith. A very special thanks to my fiance, Deirdre, for putting up with long hours, late nights, and me trying to record huge chunks of this show under a blanket in our studio apartment every night. And finally, I especially want to give a shout out and thank you to everyone out there who listened and subscribed to Impeachment Today. It has been a hell of a ride, and it's only been possible because you wanted to know what the hell was going on with our government. And with that, I also wanted to give a shout out to every member of the BuzzFeed News team, every expert, and every other journalist who took the time to come onto this show to help us understand what the fuck was actually happening over this very, very confusing time. You guys out there, you've been an amazing, kind, and engaged audience. Glad y'all stuck around so we could see how this all ended together.
NFL fans, nothing compares to being there live. What a play! Now the crowd is alive. And the NFL's biggest season ever is now ready for the postseason. It's playoff time. We got to win. NFL playoff tickets are on sale now. Don't miss your chance to be a part of the postseason action on the road to Super Bowl 56. Visit NFL.com slash tickets for a complete listing of games. That's NFL.com slash tickets. You can watch the NFL playoffs like a fan, or you can prep like a scout if you listen to the award-winning Move the Sticks podcast. The show's hosted by me, Daniel Jeremiah, and my partner, Bucky Brooks. The two of us are bringing the knowledge from a career as NFL talent scouts to the podcast world so fans can watch and understand the nuances of the game like never before. We'll break down film from the professional and college game to get you ready for the Super Bowl, the draft, and kickoff next fall. Subscribe now and listen to the Move the Sticks podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Hello. Hi. Oh my God, I want to come through the screen and hug you. Hey everybody, Jessica Zor here, also known as Vanessa Abrams on Gossip Girl. I am so excited to share my new podcast with you guys. It's called XOXO, and it's a walk down memory lane all about Gossip Girl. I'll chat with some of the cast, crew, fans of the show, and I'm just so pumped for you guys to go on this journey with me. Hi, I'm Ed Westwick. I played Chuck Bass. Is this Michelle Trachtenberg? I'll never tell. Hey, I'm Taylor Momsen, and I play Jenny Humphrey. Hi, I'm Sebastian Stan, and I played Carter Payson. That was one of the reasons I liked the character Jenny so much, is that she was very relatable. The whole thing was such a joy for me to do, and I was just so thankful that people responded the way they did to what we were doing. This really was just, like, wonderful. I, like, have, like, warm feelings inside. Yeah, me too. I'm giving you air hugs. Listen to XOXO on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.